This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 16. How easy do you find it to trust a promise? Well, if the promise comes from God, that's the best guarantee in the universe. Today, we'll hear Jesus promise several things about his church. In particular, he'll promise that his church will never die. That's great news for anyone who's discouraged by where they are in a church's life cycle. And it's such a relief to learn that the church is God's to build and populate. That really takes the pressure off, and it helps us return to our true mission, which is spreading the good news of the gospel. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So let's read again that text that we started last week, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So we looked at the confusion about the identity of Christ, verses 13 through 14, and then we verified the clarification about the identity of Christ and the divine origin of the confession. Today, I'm going to spend the remainder of our time talking about the divine order of the church, and that is so important for us to keep in mind and remember, because what the world wants us to think is that Christianity is coming to an end at least here in the West, that Christianity has its days numbered. But biblical Christianity will never cease to exist, whether it's here or in other parts of the world. Why? Because of the promise that Jesus just uttered here. I will build my church. And he never leaves anything unfinished. We do sometimes, but not Jesus. And he goes on to say, not even the gates of Hades will prevail against the church. And we'll see what that means in a, in a little bit now. But for now... I want to share with you that this is the very first time that the word church appears in the Bible, and that's the term ekklesia. That word is a combination of two Greek words, the prefix ek, which means out of, and then the word kaleo, the verb kaleo, which means to call. Now, ekklesia, the community of called out people, we conclude then that born-again believers in Christ are the people who Jesus called out of the world and now sent back into the world with a message. And Peter confirms that, for example, when he writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race. He is referring to believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may 
proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here it is, the calling out of the world, now equipped and sent back into the world with the message. And we know exactly the message we are to preach. We are to proclaim Jesus Christ. And Peter gives us a great example here of the common confession that we have as a church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, the church has a divine order. It's not the idea of people. The church is the idea that came from God. But let me give you a mnemonic device. Now, a mnemonic device is something that assists you with memorization, okay? Let me give you a mnemonic device that will help you understand this mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament but now fully revealed about the church. You ready for this? This is the seven C's of the church, okay? Seven C's. We are chosen, called, converted, commissioned, members of a community united by a common confession. Let me say that again. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a chosen, converted, commissioned member of a community united by a common confession. And now that we know the seven C's of the church, I want to show you from the text three reasons why every attempt to or prediction about the demise of Christianity will fail miserably. Okay? Three reasons why every attempt to or prediction about The demise of Christianity will fail miserably. Reason number one in verses 15 through 18. We have an immortal architect. An architect who will never die. People have tried already killing Jesus Christ. They failed. So we have an immortal architect. And the chief builder of the church lives forever. That's one of the reasons why we will never cease to exist. Because the chief builder of the church lives forever to always oversee the project that he promised to build. He lives forever because he conquered death and he will therefore carry on the work until the day of Christ. Like Paul says, individually speaking, according to Philippians 1 verse 6, you are a project of God. He began a good work in you and he will continue that work until the day of Christ. So he is continually working in you individually and collectively in us as the body of Christ, the building of Christ, the bride of Christ, or the brethren of Christ. Another mnemonic device here for you. And he will continue to exist and therefore we will never cease to exist until the day of the rapture when the church is taken out of here then tribulation saints will then take over the task of preaching christ and proclaiming the kingdom so christianity will never cease to exist it will merge into the kingdom after the second coming of christ i want you to see something here again in verse 15 jesus beatitude to peter reveals the owner of the church not only he is the immortal architect but he is the owner of the church because he says i will build my church Notice the possessive pronoun here. My church. The church belongs to Christ. The community of called out people does not belong to its human leaders. The church doesn't belong to us. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is where God has temporarily placed me. Temporarily, I say, because one day I will no longer be here. Somebody else will take over and you will one day be promoted to glory. So this church belongs to Jesus Christ. It doesn't belong to the leaders of the church or to the elders of this church. The church doesn't belong to the members of the church. This is the church where you attend, where you were a part of. This is the flock that God has placed you. We both agree that that's the case. That is why you joined in church membership here. We are the people for his own possession, according to Titus 2, verse 14. We are his sheep, and we hear his voice, according to John 10, verse 27. We ignore every other voice. We hear the voice of Christ, and we follow his voice because we are the sheep of his pasture. 
We're not the fan club of the pastor or the other leader or any other thing or the band or whatever. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the people for his own possession. We are his body, the Bible says very clearly. We are the body of Christ. We are his bride and his family and his building project, according to this passage over here. So for that reason, it gives us a tremendous sense of hope and peace to know that any attempt against the church is an attempt against something that belongs to Christ. They'll have to answer to him, not to me, not to you. So somebody criticizes the church. I don't worry about it because they're not criticizing anything that belongs to me. If somebody tries anything against the church, they don't have to answer to me. They're not causing me any harm. If they oppress and they persecute the church, or if they want to do harm to the church, which is, is happening more and more these days all over the country, all over the world, really, they're going to have to answer to the one that owns the place, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect architect, the perfect builder who never dies to continually oversee the construction of the project. Now, at the moment you start thinking that the church belongs to you, that's when we get into trouble. So here's how Peter clarifies, for example, our role in the church. Now that we know that we don't own the church, the church doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to you. Peter says concerning our role in this construction project, 1 Peter 2 verse 5, we are living stones being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, circle being built, that is passive voice. I want you to know. So Peter says, we are being built. We're not the builders. We are the ones that are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priest who to offer up sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And he founded his church, not on the person, but on the proclamation of Simon Barjona. I want you to understand that very clearly because the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus Christ founded the church on the person of Peter. Let me show you why this can never be the case. Jesus, the creator of rhetoric, the master of language, and the master of figurative language here, compared his disciple with a pebble, okay? So he says, Peter, you are a little rock. Petros, that's the word in Greek. It's a masculine noun. You are Petros. That's how we got the name Peter. You are Petros, a little pebble you can hold in your hands. And on this Petra, a feminine noun, which means a large boulder, a large immovable rock. He says, on this particular rock, I will build my church. So he's saying, you are Petros, a little rock. And on this Petra, a giant rock, giant boulder, I will build my church. Two different words. Similar sounding words, but they're different. So clearly, Christ has promised and is now building the global community of people he called out of the world on the confession of Peter, not on the person of Peter. Now, he's a hero of the faith. No question about that. He's a man we should admire for his boldness and his courage. Certainly a first among equals. In apostles here, you see him preaching boldly in Acts 2 and taking leadership and all of that. But nevertheless, he is not the rock upon which Jesus is building his church because that would contradict a whole body of doctrine from the New Testament. Therefore, a church founded on anything other than this confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A church that stands on anything other than that is on sinking sand. 
And Paul says this, according to Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, writing to believers, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are God's household, again, having been built, again, passive voice, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So church, in this construction project, the foundation has already been laid. Now, those of you who are contractors, how many times do you have to lay the foundation? Only once. The foundation has already been laid, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, we already have the body of doctrine that God promised to use to build us up here. So we don't need new revelation. We don't need to have new apostles. We don't need to have new prophets. We need to have people who are faithful in proclaiming the message that has already been revealed to us because we are being built And in that construction project, the foundation has already been laid. And like I said before, my fellow believer, on an individual level, you are a work in progress because God began a good work and you remember this. So every time you stumble upon a sin issue or, or you stumble upon your imperfection, just celebrate your imperfection. Don't celebrate your sin, hate your sin, but celebrate your imperfection because it's an opportunity for you to be worked on by God because he says he began a good work in you. And furthermore... Rejoice, because you are a part of an indestructible institution, the only one in the world that will never cease to exist. The company you founded one day will cease to exist, but not the church, because we have an immortal architect. Let me give you a second reason why Christianity will never cease to exist. Not only do we have an immortal architect, according to verse 18, second part of the verse, we have an immutable assurance. And immutable, I mean changeless assurance. Because, second part of that verse, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. First promise is, I will build my church. And then the second part of the promise is, the gates of Hades will never overpower it. Now, many people get confused at this point here. They think that this is referring to hell. And I'm going to show you why this is not referring to the kingdom of darkness. Although we know that not even the kingdom of darkness can destroy the church. But in this particular case here, Jesus is talking about something else. He uses the expression gates of Hades to illustrate the realm of the dead. Okay, The gates of Hades is a common Jewish expression to refer to the realm of the dead. Sheol in the Old Testament is the equivalent. Now, what this means is this, church. Both redeemed and unredeemed people go to the realm of the dead. I mean, we're still running 100% on that statistic. You will die one day. So the question is not whether or not you will die. The question is where you're going to go when you die. Well, you're going to enter the realm of the dead when you die. And there are only two options. And let me assure you something that might be new to you. It's not left or right, either geographically or politically. It's either up or down. At least before the resurrection of Jesus, saved people, redeemed people, when they enter the realm of the dead, they would go to a place called Abraham's bosom. And the reason we know that is because Jesus used that expression in Luke 16 to describe the place where the redeemed Lazarus went when he died, as opposed to the rich man. Now, the rich man went to a different place, not because he was rich, but because he was unredeemed. You see, there's nothing wrong with being rich, nothing wrong with having money. The problem is when money has you. So the thing is, this man, the rich man, went to a different place. Lazarus went to a place called Abraham's bosom after his death. Now, when the unredeemed die, and again, remember, it's either up or down, They go to lower Hades. It's down. And I'll show you why in a minute here. By the way, this is not where Satan is. 
People have this confused because popular culture wants us to believe that Satan is the super cool DJ in charge of the never-ending rave party in hell. Nothing can be further from the truth. He's not even in hell right now. He is the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says. He's in the world. The Bible says, greater is he that's in us than he who is in the world. So Satan is roaming the earth. He's in the world. He's not in Hades. This is the place of the dead and the unredeemed dead who go to the realm of the dead, go to lower Hades. Let me prove that to you. Luke 16, verses 22 to 23. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Here's that expression again. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So church, what do we know about lower Hades? Oh, it's beneath wherever the redeemed are because this man looked up and it's a place of torment. So the unredeemed, when they enter the realm, the, the realm of the dead, they immediately go into torment. And it's a lower part of Hades. Now, Hades, the place of the dead or the realm of the dead, has metaphorical gates, apparently. Just like the kingdom of heaven has a metaphorical narrow gate. Now, it's not hard to understand the analogy here. Just think clearly with me. What is the purpose of a gate? The purpose of a gate is to restrict access and control exit, right? That's the purpose of a gate. But because, according to Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die only once, when you enter the realm of the dead, you will never leave the realm of the dead unless you are a believer in Christ. Once an unbeliever enters Hades, the realm of the dead, the place of torment, when he looks up in torment, he will stay there until the day of the great white throne judgment, which we learn about in the book of Revelation, when the unbeliever will be resurrected in order to stand trial and be sentenced forever to the lake of fire. You see, that's the plight of the unbeliever. We don't take any pleasure in that. We don't speak about that with a vindictive heart. We speak about that with a heavy heart because people in our families are now in the condition of unbelievers. If they die today, they will enter the realm of the dead to go to Hades and stay there in torment until the day they will be resurrected to stand trial at the great white throne judgment and be sent to the lake of fire forever. Let me show that to you from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose present earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Listen. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the eternal destination of an unbeliever. The gates of Hades will prevail against them because they will never leave Hades. They will only be resurrected to face Christ as their judge and be sent to the lake of fire because they refuse to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is serious business. But on the other hand, here's your eternal destiny if you're a believer in Christ. When you enter the realm of the dead, you will go immediately into the presence of God. To be home with the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. To be separated from the body is to be present with the Lord, immediately at home with the Lord. 
and we will enjoy perfect fellowship with Jesus, waiting for the resurrection of our bodies so that we can leave the realm of the dead and enter the realm of the living again. In other words, death has limited power over you. The day you die, your body is going to go to the grave, but the immaterial part of you is going to be immediately into the presence of God, awaiting the resurrection of your body. Now, I have spoken at memorial services for believers many times. Usually there's hope and joy, and the hope and the joy quickly overwhelm the pain of temporary separation because the deceased has simply changed addresses. He or she is now in the presence of God. Now, I have also spoken at funerals for unbelievers, and that is one of the most depressing things to do because you have desperation and hopelessness in the place because there is that feeling that you will never see that person again. No matter what belief system they have that's apart from Scripture, they don't offer any hope. So they are forever locked into the realm of the dead, never to be recovered. And that is the mother of all tragedies because it's an avoidable tragedy. It's a totally preventable tragedy. You know, we've been hearing about all those preventable tragedies going around in our community. The real preventable tragedy is for somebody to come to faith in Jesus Christ because of what he says in John 5 verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And that is why Jesus says here, the gates of Hades will never overpower my church. Why? Because when a believer dies, he has passed out of death into life, and he will come back to the realm of the living. Church, that is worth shouting an amen. Amen. We will return to the realm of the living in sinless, glorified existence, never to experience physical death, sorrow, sadness, suffering again. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again on the third day. So you see why persecutors actually do us a tremendous favor when they kill us? Not only are they populating heaven, they're helping purify and embolden the church. We lay down our lives for the gospel. People witness our courage and they come to faith in Christ, therefore neutralizing the power of the gates of Hades over them. So what do we do then with this promise in verse 18? We proclaim the immortal architect and we celebrate our immutable assurance. That'll never change. But there's a third reason why Christianity will never cease to exist. And we'll finish with that one in this verses 19 through 20. Not only do we have an immortal architect, an immutable assurance, we have imparted authority. That's what Jesus means in his last illustration here. And again, he continues with the picture of access and restriction. Okay, there's a gate and now there's a key. Don't miss the two. They are connected. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean God is giving Peter complete authority of the kingdom of heaven? I I hope not, because in the the next paragraph, he calls Peter Satan. So no, that, that doesn't mean that Peter is now in charge of the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not at all what that means. Let's talk about this for a moment. What is the purpose of a key? What do you do with your key? You control access. Now, Christ has already hinted at this handing off of authority Listen to Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out and instructing them, He said, Do not go by the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel as you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the key that the apostles had. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are now commissioned with opening the door of the kingdom of heaven. After the resurrection, he commissioned the disciples by saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's another turn of the key. Future generations of disciples, that is you and me, 
preach the gospel, when we do that, we open the narrow gate to heaven. And we let people know that Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus then admits people on the basis of faith. Those who decline the invitation, pay very close attention here. Those who decline the invitation to come in are forever bound in their sin. That is why Jesus says, whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Because when we preach the message that opens the door to heaven and people come in, they're in the kingdom. But if people refuse to come, they are bound in their sin, in the consequences and in the condemnation of their sin. So every time you preach the gospel faithfully to someone, you turn that key and you invite people to come to the kingdom. And when they do, God unbinds them from their sin because the truth has now set them free. So... Fellow believers, you have the key of the kingdom of heaven. You don't keep the key in your pocket. You use the key, which means you need to be preaching to people. You need to tell people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can make it to the kingdom of heaven. Let me talk to you about the key, how you come in the door, how you come through the door. And this is imparted authority. That authority has been given to you at the moment you became a believer in Christ. And now your goal in life is to make other disciples. So church, if you're a believer in Christ, you have this hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 24, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So church, that is our hope, that is our assurance, that nothing, not even death, will ever stop the church. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.